Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Kent. Good morning, everyone. Uh, something really weird is happening right now. I'm standing here with two feet. So hopefully I won't fall from both feet. We'll see what happens. Uh, thank you to uh, Tad and Brian who have preached recently as my family and I were traveling a little bit. Uh, next week, Rob Krause will be here with us and he will be sharing. Uh, Rob is the pastor of Serenissima Bible Church in uh, Italy and is one of our adopted missionaries as a church. We're hoping to do more with him and his ministry in the future. So his family is from here and he's spending a little bit of time here this summer. You may remember him from last year if you were here with us. Uh, he will be sharing next week, so I know you'll look forward to that. Uh, turn with me to John 17, if you will, please. And if you don't have a Bible in the chair rack under the chair in front of you, there is one. Feel free to take that if you don't have a Bible of your own. Love for everybody to hold the scriptures in your hands so you can see it as we work through it together today. We're going to go through the first paragraph in John 17. Today's talk covers a very challenging uh, topic, both to understand and to practice, but God, I believe, has a really great message for us in it. It's in the Bible so that we would know him more and, and grow in our love for him and hopefully with one another. Uh, C.S. Lewis, a few decades ago, wrote, or spoke actually in first, this, if Christianity could tell me no more of a far-off land, meaning heaven, then my own temperament has led me to surmise already. Then Christianity would be no higher than myself. If it has more to give, I must expect it to be less immediately attractive than my own stuff. In other words, it's no surprise that at times when we open the Bible and just work through it passage by passage that we'll meet certain verses that at times can seem removed from our everyday life, can seem confusing, can seem perhaps even unhelpful. But it has to be that way if what Christianity is actually telling us is true. Lewis continues, if our religion is something objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent. For it will be precisely the puzzling or the repellent which conceals what we do not yet know and need to know. Church, God has something for us today. But as we work through this together, it, it may be a little confusing to us, might seem otherworldly. But it might be that it seems that way because there is something precisely in what might seem at first confusing that is so immensely helpful to us. So John 17, I'll read a 1 to 5. Would you follow along with me? When Jesus has spoken these words, in particular the words that Tad talked to us about last week, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, 
that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. This sermon series this summer called Christ Our Life has been covering the time span of of only one late afternoon through the evening. And yet there's so much wonderful material that we're spending the whole summer on it, and we certainly could spend the whole year. And this is the same night in which Jesus would be later arrested. John 13 to 16 has taken us on this wonderful journey together of knowing God more by listening in as he's been speaking to the disciples, preparing them for his death that was coming. But in chapter 17, we move from from Jesus talking to his disciples to Jesus talking to his Father, to Jesus praying. And in the first five verses, we see Jesus praying about himself. In the coming weeks, we'll see Jesus praying for specifically his disciples and then for all his followers who would ever come, which would include who? Us. Did you know that Jesus prayed for you? Isn't that humbling? Jesus prayed first for himself and then for the the 11 and then for the church, for all Christians everywhere of which you are a part if God is your Savior. In this prayer today, Jesus prays for himself. Prayer is tough. One of the many reasons many of us struggle with prayer is that we misunderstand what it's for. Perhaps an analogy would be helpful. My kids, um, Abby and Micah, start back to school tomorrow. How do you feel about that, Abby? Blah. Blah? (laughs) Abby will be in fifth grade and Micah in second. Um, That's further than I thought I would make it. One of the biggest impacts in a child's life is who they get as a teacher. They will spend enormous amounts of time under this man or woman. Now, in the particular school that Abby and Micah go to, uh, their practice is to every year, as one school year is drawing to a close, to send out a questionnaire to parents that asks a whole bunch of questions about the kids. So every spring, my sweet wife, Jill, spends a lot of time answering questions about our kids. They ask questions about strengths and weaknesses and learning styles, behavior, discipline. And then this assessment gets sent back into the school, and the school uses it to figure out which kid should go with which teacher. So you can imagine, as parents, we have a lot of vested interest in what goes on that form and in what happens to it. Correct? Imagine, though, that one year, somebody calls Jill from the church office and says, hey, we got your form. I'd like to stop by your house and meet with you. Jill, of course, is going to scratch her head a bit, but say, sure. So the administrator from the school shows up, and they sit down together at the kitchen table and says, thanks for the form. I'd really love to get to know you, and you know me. Tell me a bit about yourself. 
Now, Jill is, is um, much more temperate than I am, and so she would likely not say, well, that's not what I wanted. She'd say, sure, let's have a spot of tea. And they would sit down together and begin to, to dialogue. But maybe Jill would say, thanks, but what does that have to do with the reason I sent the form in? And I imagine the administrator might say, well, nothing really. I just wanted to come and build a friendship with you. To which Jill would probably say, that's nice, but that's not at all what I was after when I sent in the form. Friends, that analogy helps us get at the vast difference between Jesus praying and our prayers. Jesus prayed to know the Father more. He prayed to align his heart with the will of God. We often pray simply to mail in the request form to the administrator. One author put it like this, Jesus prays not to conform God to his agenda, but to conform his own heart to God's agenda. We pray when we're struggling or doubting or in trouble or in need or feel wronged. Whether you're a Christian or not, studies show the vast majority of people, particularly in this country, pray. But we pray mainly to get something. Jesus prays to know the Father and his will. Church, maybe the thing we need to hear the most today is the first thing we need is not to bend to God to our will, but to come to him in prayer, to, to not mail in the request form, but to simply spend time with the Father, allowing him to reshape and reform our hearts over and over and over. All the great prayers of the Bible, that's what they are. And this is certainly one of them. Later this year, we'll spend about two months, Lord willing, together, walking through um, one of the early chapters in Matthew where what's known as the Lord's Prayer is given. And we're just going to take it phrase by phrase over a period of time together. But for today, let's consider Jesus' prayer. Jesus made only one request in that paragraph we read. He said it twice in verse 1 and 5, and it's pretty simple. He said, Father, glorify your Son. Father, glorify your Son. The verb glorify can mean one of two things. It can mean uh, to honor and praise, or it can mean to clothe with splendor. So honor and praise or clothe in splendor. Both would be correct for Jesus to pray. But as this prayer unfolds, we'll see that it's the latter that Jesus was praying. He was saying, return, Father, to me the splendor that I enjoyed with you before the world ever began. Father, give me a homecoming of glory. Bring me back to heaven where I'll reign with you forever. Reveal your character through the cross and resurrection and the granting of authority through which I'll be able to bring people to know you. Now, Jesus was praying this prayer at this precise moment because verse 1 tells us his hour 
had come. All through the Gospel of John, Jesus keeps talking over and over and over again about his hour, meaning his death. Chronologically, now was the time for Jesus to die. Now was the time for him to meet the ultimate aim to which he had come. He would be, in just a few hours, killed, buried, and then a few days later, resurrected, and then ultimately glorified. This was the Father's will that this would happen now. Just hours after this prayer, it would happen. It's a historical fact. Now, interpreting why is a whole other matter altogether. But historically, even people who reject Christianity outright, most don't reject the fact that he was killed, that he died. Everything in Jesus' 33 years pointed forward to this very hour where Jesus would die in place of sinners so that sinners could come to know and enjoy place with God. God had ordained this hour. And if you read the first two-thirds of the Bible, Genesis through Malachi, you'll find that their chief topic was this coming death of Jesus. It pointed forward to him. The Father's absolute control over all things, even the cross itself, is what motivated Jesus to pray. If God's all-powerful and he knows everything, then doesn't it make sense to talk to him about what might be coming up in life? So to put that in our terms, what sometimes decreases our desire to pray is what actually motivated Jesus to pray. He's in control. One of the main things that happens in biblical prayer is that our hearts are conformed and reminded of what the Father's will is. As um, I visit with people who, who may struggle to pray, one of the most common objections or struggles with prayer is, well, why pray if God already knows it? Why pray if, it's, if what God's decided is already going to happen? And in one sense, it makes sense to struggle with that, doesn't it? But in another sense, that reveals that we're misunderstanding at the essence, at the heart, what prayer is. Prayer is, is sitting down with God in his word and being shaped and reformed by him. Even Jesus needed that. And that's what he was doing in this prayer. Father, glorify your son. Now, why would Jesus pray that? That's a little confusing. Look at verse 1 again, if you would. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, and here's the purpose, that the Son may glorify you. Father, clothe me in splendor again so that I can point back to you, so that you can be given glory. Brothers and sisters, God is for God. Throughout all of eternity, God the Son has been celebrating and pointing to the Father. The Father has been doing the same for the Son, and the Spirit 
has been repeating, joining in that celebration of both. That's how the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, relate. God is a a community of perfect praise. He's always been that. God is for God. And that is exceedingly wonderful for us. You see, God being for God is what made it possible that God would extend life to people, to sinners who didn't deserve it. Another way to say that is all who turn from lives of sin to Jesus Christ are caught up in the joy of glorifying God. That's what verse 3 tells us, that this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, in all of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the Father was put on perfect display. Christians exist today not because we're stronger or smarter or more moral or ethical than our neighbor, but ultimately because the Father said yes to this prayer. He said, I will glorify you in your death and thereby invite people into eternal life. Millions now rightly see the Father in glorious splendor because the Father allowed the Son to point to Him. Father, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Now, if you're scratching your head a bit, then that's the way I was this week as I worked on this passage. At first glance, it's pretty simple. But as you really gaze into it and think about all the implications of it, it becomes more complex. One reason for that might be that glory is one of those words that gets used in rooms like this, but not often elsewhere. It's a pretty churchy word. So what is it? We can sound spiritual and intelligent and godly, by saying, I pray this to your glory, God. Amen. But do we actually get what that means? Or is it just a big word we use? What is glory anyway? Well, let me bullet point a couple of sentences that that would help us to perhaps be reminded of what it is. The glory of God is the display of God's splendor. The glory of God is the disclosure of his character and his worth in his actions. The glory of God is his presence revealed. The glory of God is the infinite holiness and goodness of God seen and savored. It's the honor and fame of God revealed. A little over 500 years ago, a theologian famously said, the world was no doubt made that it might be a theater of the divine glory. Put perhaps more simply, glory is a way of summarizing all that God is. Glory is God. Glory is the the display of who he is. One of the best living authors wrote this about the glory of God, and it really helped me to crystallize some of these concepts. It's long, but maybe it'll help. 
The glory of God is the way you designate the infinite beauty and the infinite greatness of the person who was there before anything else was there. In other words, it's the beauty and greatness that exist without origin, without comparison, without analogy, without being judged or assessed by any external criterion. It's the all-defining, absolute original of greatness and beauty. All greatness and beauty comes from it and points to it, but it does not comprehensively or adequately reproduce it. The glory of God is a way of saying that there is an objective, absolute reality to which all human admiration, wonder, awe, veneration, praise, honor, acclaim, and worship is pointing. We were made to find our deepest pleasure in admiring what is infinitely admirable, that is the glory of God. That's a great summary of what Scripture tells us about the glory of God. Whether you're here today just checking out Christianity, completely undecided, or you've been a follower of Christ for decades, what you most need is to get caught up in that kind of vision of who God is. Because that's reality. God is really that kind of God, and he's that good. But if that's too abstract for you and way out there, then let's pull it closer to home, into something of of our own experience this week as a culture. If you watched the news this week, then you couldn't help but catch a glimpse of Pluto. Here's a picture. Pluto. For the first time in human history, we were able, as human beings, to get an up-close image of Pluto. Pluto is three billion miles away. Nine years ago, on a rocket, was sent up a set of instruments that in 2015 could give us an image of that planet. That's how long it took to get there. And one of the things this picture reveals is ice mountains as big as the Rockies. No one in the history of humanity has ever seen that before. But it's been there for millions of years. God is a glorious God. God did that. And not only that, God made people smart enough to figure out how to get something there to take pictures and send it back here. Isn't that incredible? Friends, God is a glorious God. In fact, if we stop and look, glory is everywhere. Now, we might not use the word often, but we see it, and hopefully we experience it. God's glory is made and seen in creation. It's seen in his good gifts upon humanity, like air to breathe and water to drink, friends to laugh with, a good book, the enjoyment of your head hitting the pillow at night. God's glory is seen in in the wonder of a baby being born, 
in that little Isaac being held and presented to us today. God's glory is seen in the delight that we have in good food, in the lessons we learn in times of suffering that we never would have chosen for ourselves, in our speechlessness before the stars when we get away from the city at night. Friends, God's glory is everywhere. But the, the epicenter, the place where God's glory is seen the most is in Jesus Christ. You see, in Jesus, God is most perfectly, most fully, most completely revealed. You want to know what God's like? You're not left to wonder. Open the Bible. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the biographies of Jesus' life. God does not want you to question and wonder and struggle and doubt. Who is he? What is he like? He came and made himself known. So Jesus is saying, Father, show yourself wonderfully, chiefly through my death on the cross, and then by clothing me with splendor in the resurrection. All of this can seem a bit confusing because it's so riddled with, with religious language. But friends, glory is something that you're after every moment of every day. Everywhere, every person we meet are people enjoying and pointing and longing for something. Education, a particular job, getting into that certain group of friends, a sports team, a financial goal, the perfect body, romance with somebody in particular. In the language of the Bible, that's seeking glory. That's worshiping something or someone. Now, a natural question that arises from all of this is, if that's true, if all people everywhere are pointing to something outside of them, saying, that's glorious, then who or what actually deserves glory? That's a great question. I hope you're asking it. Some 1,500 years ago, a guy named Augustine said, Life's most basic questions boil down to determining who gets the glory, God or his creatures. Augustine sought for most of his life glory in the pleasures of sex. And so he jumped from experience to experience to experience to experience and found them momentarily pleasing but lastingly empty. And ultimately, he found God's glory in Christ. But we all must come to the point of asking the question, is God the person around which everything orbits, or am I? Our lives can feel complicated, but that's what they come down to. That is the question we face every moment of every day. 
It's what drives every decision we make. Everything we choose to get angry about, to rejoice in, to worry over, to stress about, is all wrapped up in, God, are you the center, and I'm revolving around you, or am I the center, and it's all about me? Jesus left the glory of heaven because we became people seeking our own glory. We became people trying to save ourselves. We're trying to convince ourselves against lots of evidence that we are inherently glorious. The truth is we're not. We're sinful. And without question, and without exception, we seek to make ourselves the center of life, which only makes life a wreck. But God, in forgiveness and grace and love, came and took the glory of heaven, put it into a person, and displayed himself for all to see. Now, are you struggling with this? I don't see anybody asleep, so that's a good sign. Usually there's at least a few. But is this, is this tough to grasp? Well, if so, you're in good company. In the same sermon we referenced earlier, C.S. Lewis talks about his struggle to come to understand the glory of God. And he said this, Glory suggests two ideas to me, of which one seems wicked and the other ridiculous. Either glory means to me fame, So there he's talking about God's claim to be infinitely worthwhile. So God's fame. He says that's wicked. And the other seems to mean luminosity, meaning God's disclosure of his fame. As for the first, since to be famous means to be better known than other people, the desire for fame appears to me to be a competitive passion and therefore of hell rather than of heaven. As for the second, who wishes to become a kind of living electric light bulb? In other words, if God is for God, then God's selfish. If God created us for his glory and we're commanded to give him glory, and Jesus is even looking to the Father saying, Father, give me glory, then God's nothing more than a cosmic toddler. He's in diapers with a binky whining because he wants life to be about him. Nobody should worship God if that's the way God is. If we seek our own glory, we're being selfish. Correct? Then God must be too. Now, the standard answer to that question, and it's a good answer, is that that God is the ultimate being. And because he's the ultimate being, he must ultimately be about himself. And so, it's not selfish for God to be for God, because there is nothing better than God. Now, that's true, and I affirm it 100%. 
I think it fails to do justice to a lot of what the Bible tells us about God. Because there's a link between God's self-exalting character, between God saying, I deserve worship, and God's self-giving character. You see, God must be for God because he's the greatest being there is. But part of the way we know he's the greatest being there is is that he's always loving. He, he's always self-giving, even to the point of death. Nowhere is this seen clearer than at the cross. At first glance, doesn't it seem ridiculous that what Jesus is actually saying is not glorify me after the cross, but glorify me in the cross. As Tad said last week, shame becomes joy. Only a God who's both self-exalting and self-giving could that be true of. So, at the cross is where love and glory and power and beauty converge because God gave himself for us so that we would know him, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be invited into seeing that God being for God is the most wonderful news there could ever be because he invites us into that, that we might know him and enjoy him. Now, in closing, what in the world can you do with some sermon like this? Is there any practical benefit? If I could briefly speak to two different groups of people. First, non-Christian. Those of you here today who maybe you're here because somebody brought you and you wanted to be nice. Maybe you're here because you wandered in and you have some need that you were wondering if could be met. Maybe you're here because it's just the thing you're supposed to do on Sunday. Maybe you actually have no idea why you're here. Are you ready to give up the folly of you being the center upon which everything else orbits? Friends, you, you have found experientially that, that that's a miserable life. It doesn't produce what advertising tells us it produces. It produces loneliness, brokenness, and the pursuit of simply another experience or another possession or another source of pleasure. It do, it's not lasting. If you believe what's been said today, then it, it's not because I've said it. It's because God's prompting. He's encouraging you. He's opening your mind. Are you ready to become a Christian? If so, then the dozens of people in the room today who have already reached that point by grace would say, what's required is saying, God, I, I, I hear that. I've heard what's said today, and I have some questions, but I believe it. I believe that Jesus did come and die and rise again. And that my own glory-seeking, my tendency to make life orbit around me is wrong. 
And so, God, I confess that as sin to you, and I invite you to come be my, my Savior, my Lord. And I want to learn to make life about you, not me. Friend, if so, if you can pray that in your own words, even now as I'm talking, then you can be invited into the people of God. You can join into God's family. And you can learn a whole new way of life, a life that lasts forever. And in just a few minutes, we'll take the Lord's Supper and you can join in and take it with us. Maybe a second group of people, if I could just briefly talk to, Christians. If you look at the last 24 hours of your life, or the last week, or month, have you lately been seeking and savoring and enjoying God's glory, or have you returned to seeking your own? It's entirely possible to enter the Christian life and for Christ to be the person around which life is orbiting, but then to gradually get off course. And if that's where you're at, then we would say we, we've all been there. That is the normative pattern of what can happen. Would you repent today of self glorification and return to the glory of God? I don't mean become a Christian again. I simply mean reaffirm that Christ deserves that central place, that the Father alone is glorious. Would you repent of pathetic little prayers of which your desires are the chief goal? And return to prayers that are big, are powerful, are mighty. And that's, God, whatever circumstances I'm in, may you be displayed. May you be honored. And then would you consider deciding today with the help of fellow brothers and sisters. So it'll, it'll take some honesty on your part. Some articulating of that's where I am. In a few minutes to another brother or sister. And, and reaffirm, make, make a commitment again to just living out one verse. Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 10. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Friends, every moment of every day, we are in an all-out glory war. People, education, possessions, sex, finances, looks, friends, sports. Every one of those things can be rightly enjoyed if it comes under and we do it because we're glorifying God. God is for God. And that's exceedingly wonderful for us. Would you stand and let's pray. Father, this is certainly not an easy topic. 
Not an easy passage, but it's certainly one that we need. And so we pray that by your spirit, that you'd shine it into our hearts and that people who do not yet know you, even as I'm praying, would return from seeking their own glory to yours. And by your grace that you would give them new life and that in just a moment they could celebrate your death and your life as we take the Lord's Supper together. And Lord, for those who have already walked that path, God, break us of our self-glorification that we might exalt you. You alone, God, are worthy of all praise. And as individuals and as a church, we want to not be about us, but about you. And so where we need to repent and return, convict us of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.